So, just to give a little introduction, this is a new segment that we're adding to our Emergency Medicine podcast. It's uh, I'm going to be doing it. I'm Thomas Widening, second year here, obviously, uh, with our very own Dr. Frank Levecchio, who has a lot of different letters behind your name now. What do you have? Let's, uh, go, let's go through them. Dad, that's the most oh, important. Oh, there you that's go. The, that's the most ha- Happy holidays. Clutch, right around the Christmas season. Yeah. Got to Happy holidays for everybody. I like, it. I like it. These are exciting articles. They are. Thomas, I really appreciate it. I know. I think we're going to have a good time. Just to kind of introduce what we're doing, this is going to be called What's New in EM, and we're going to go through the literature, kind of peruse the newest uh, literature that's come out in reference to emergency medicine, and kind of just give a our summation of, of what it is and how it can influence our uh, day-to-day practice, as well as go over some basic management uh, when we touch on a topic that I, uh, can influence, I think, some basic management. So, for example, we go over something with CHF, we'll go over basic CHF management or ACS, blah, blah, blah. So, so. the big negative is uh, sometimes I'm long-winded and I'm purposely trying to keep it short and sweet. And uh, Tom will keep me in check when I get too short and sweet, which is almost never. Correct. But I thought this... Um, the update uh, in resuscitation treatment was kind of interesting. There was an update in resuscitation treatment on basic life support in December 2017. And uh, for me, it wasn't really that much of an update. They just basically gave a reiteration of what we should be doing better, which is compressions. Yeah. So it's not a trick for any of us. It's not a surprise that good compressions are associated with better outcomes. So I don't know if you want to talk about I fa- well the thing I find interesting is always that the rate stays between 100 to 120, even in infants. Yeah, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, you'd expect it to be a little higher, but they have the same recommendation for the pediatric rate, is same as adult. Okay, the, so get- the thing that I've you know you hear about like compressions only CPR, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to address that much here. It still talks about the breaths and everything, but uh, I know there's a transition away from that. It seems that we're kind of like transitioning back to. Maybe for bystanders, we obviously teach the ch- uh, the compressions only, but for healthcare providers, we still recommend the breathings. Okay, so if I was going to give you um, a mental economy, meaning yep. that just remember one thing, a good number to remember is about five centimeters. So for the adults, the recommendation is to have your depth go five to six centimeters. Okay, mm-hmm. and for kids. It's recommended to go five centimeters. Okay. And for infants, it's about a little less than five or four. Okay. okay? So hopefully you'll never see an infant code. One of the things they emphasize, again, is the sternum should return back for recoil uh, all the time, full recoil. And then what do you think about the – I know you're big into technology. I am. What – well, so there's this thought of using like a metronome or something that will assist you in knowing. Metro who? A metronome. What is that? It's a it's a, basically just a device that'll tell you it'll tick off. You know, we always teach you to the beat of staying alive because that's roughly one uh, 100 to 120 beats per minute as far as the you know da 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 staying alive. A metronome is similar, but you know some people seeing seeing uh, staying alive a little faster than others, like you might, Doctor Levecchio, and mm-hmm. so you'd be off. Maybe you're doing it 130, 140, and getting the suboptimal filling of the heart because you're doing a little too fast, um, which we just had a code over at our facility, and I, we walked in on it, and I swear they were going about 210 beats per minute. It was insane. It was mm-hmm. insane how fast they were going. But a metronome is something that would tell you by giving auditory feedback uh, that you could hear, uh, you know, exactly how fast you're going. And a lot of the pads that you place on, uh, you know, for like. Uh, they have a lot of different devices now that you place on their chest when you're doing the compressions. It'll actually give you auditory feedback or visual feedback, or someone can look and it'll tell you exactly how deep you're going. It'll tell you go deeper, go faster, go slower. 
uh, etc. So I, I think they're great. Not every place has them. We do, and I, I think that they're great, especially for learners that are uh, getting the feel for what a good chest compression feels like. So it's going to mess me up because I always want you to move faster in your department. I tell you to stop falling in love. You're Correct. getting to attach this patient, discharge them, make a move. Now i got to tell you, please fall in love as you're getting the pressure. <laughs> That's exactly so right. slow it down. Okay, exactly staying right. alive. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but this bacterial vaginosis thing has been bothering me forever. Yeah, I know. I've been prescribing uh, metronidazole quite often. Metronidazole. And the whole thing with metronidazole, we get this whole disulfan reaction. Right. And it probably occurs less frequently than we think it does, but certainly nausea, vomiting, and other side effects are very, very common metronidazole. Well, I mean, especially at this time of year, right? Everyone's right. going home, everyone's off, everyone's drinking. I mean, can you imagine? That's right. And um, disulfan reaction can be deadly. Uh, unfortunately. Huh. And we remember the disulfan reaction. If you do give a presser, it's one of the few times in life where you're very, very wrong to give dopamine. Hmm. Okay. Why is that? As, um, because it has to be changed into a molecule that would be effective postsynaptically. And when you have a disulfan reaction, it depletes it. So you have to give something direct acting. That's a pearl right there. That's a pearl right there. The other time it's absolutely contraindicated or won't work or can make things worse is MAO inhibitors. So tox people tend to use something direct acting all the time. Okay? You should try to. But the times that dopamine, which has to be converted into something, mm -hmm. some of your enzymes are down, are disulfan reactions and two MAOI inhibitors, overdoses, which, believe it or not, are still out there. It's making a little bit of a comeback. But with that said is I have this woman in front of me who has bacterial vaginosis, and she keeps coming in and coming in and coming in. And one of the reasons is noncompliance. I don't know the right duration. Some people say one big dose. Some people say three days. Most people err on seven days. I was going to say that's what I always give. Yeah. That most, and, you know, some people give 500 TID. Some people give 500 QID. Right. Okay. Um, they know 500 times QID. Times three times a day. Yeah. Jesus. QID for something that causes nausea almost immediately. Well, we have an answer to this. What do you think of this? Uh, I'm going to go with... Secnitazole. Secnitazole. Okay, I'm cheating. Secnitazole or solo sec. Okay, one and done. You know how I feel about the one and done. I, I do know how you it's, feel about that. It's great, and you're done with it. Now, I can say that it is probably very, very expensive. So I was looking. I tried to look into, like, the exact pricing, and I couldn't see anything. They mentioned uh, that it is more expensive, but it's kind of variable depending on what market you are and who the... Uh, who you're buying it from. So I couldn't nail down a specific price, but it is more expensive than metronidazole. But you have to counter that with, like, the people that I'm considering giving this medication are the people that are coming back to the ER and using, you know, resources in a different way in, you know, physician and RN time and, you know, utilization resources and stuff like that. So I wonder if the cost doesn't balance it out. This is obviously to probably tend to have people using it too much. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's the same as the... What's that one dose uh, by, uh, medication that we have? The antibiotic. Dabavancin. Yeah, that, that one. And or ritavancin or, or abactin. Right. So more expensive, but in the patients that you're considering that for, it probably makes sense uh, economically because they're the ones that are going to utilize more resources. If I was king for a day and you discharged a patient from county and had no insurance, I would give them GoodRx. Yeah. GoodRx is a cool website that um, I don't work for, but I wish I did. That, right? Yeah, but... Um, on GoodRx. No one, but yeah, we should. Yeah, we should. Um, $109. So at the end of the day, it's not like a billion dollars. Give them a GoodRx coupon, print it out for them, and tell them to go. 
Alright. Okay, that's what I would recommend. So that's the update for Windows BV treatments now FDA. How do you pronounce it again, I Thomas? I don't know. Second it is all and solo sec. Solo sec. I like solo sec. We'll I like solo one. sec, yeah. We'll do that one. So should we make a should we make a little advertisement? Solo sec when B V is bothering you. That's kinda of That is Stop I, BV. You know with what? Solo sec. If someone from uh, who makes this drug, P or someone like that hears this, uh, that could be their next drop. All right, two grams, one one and done. Yep, two grams, one and done. Okay, so I've been exhausted through my career here at Maricopa where um, I have a guy come in, he's got a little bit of CHF. Maybe if I check the BNP, it's a little high. He's got a little failure on there. He's got a known history of CHF. And we give him maybe an aspirin because we're going to rule him out. And we give him some oxygen. And then I'll write for 40 of Lasix. And then the residents will yell, you're killing him. Oh, my God. And I love Amalma too. And uh, he's a friend, and he always talks about how diuretics are killing patients with heart failure. And I think what he's trying to say is some studies have suggested increased mortality and morbidity. But the mortality is really, really tricky. Because if you come in and you're really, really sick with CHF and I give you you know, a thousand milligrams of Lasix over 24 hours. It's a lot. Okay. Versus your twin, which I give 10 milligrams of Lasix, and you die and he doesn't. Well, did the Lasix kill you, or is that just a marker or for higher morbidity? Right, right, right. Okay. So you're saying the people that needed more were sicker to begin with, so you're not correcting for the stage or sickness. Correct. And then the other thing I'll tell you is that um, it does mess up your electrolytes the next day, and sometimes at least to increase length of stay, and realize that we as clinicians, um, don't like people hanging around too long, but the ER doesn't pay as much attention as they should to in-hospital. So my gut feeling is that, sure, give it, but back in the day, we used to give double their home home dose, okay? I don't know if you have to do that anymore. Maybe their home dose or a little bit more, but my gut feeling based upon this article is to maybe give their home dose, especially if they missed a dose or two, right? If you're giving double their home dose and their home dose really is zero, you can give a billion times that and it'll still be zero. Right. Okay, realize that people are non-compliant. So this gives, in a multi-center prospective study, um, it was done in Japan, it was about 13,000 patients. It showed that if you give it within one hour of treatment versus patients that did not get it within one hour, they actually did better. So less morbidity. I think Look, it, looking into it, so it actually the decreased mortality was 2.3% in the ones that got it in less than one hour to 6% the ones that didn't, which, I mean, that's substantial. That's like greater than 3% right. increase in mortality. Like some, Sometimes you'll see a study like this that'll say like, oh, uh, statistically significant decrease in mortality, and it'll be like 3% versus 2.9%. And right. I kind of, I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah, you reach statistical significance, but not clinical significance. Whereas this is like, that's like, oh, that's greater than 3%. That's something that I would definitely be interested in. I can definitely say since reading this article, uh, and we'll include all the articles in the show notes, by the way, the PMIDs and everything um, that we're referencing, but I, it, it's made me more aware of the fact that, like you were saying before that I read this, I didn't use Lasix all the time. I thought mm-hmm. it was more like an inpatient thing. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they'll start the Lasix for this. I diagnose CHF. The one problem I do run into is a lot of the diagnostic uncertainty that we run into with these patients initially. Uh, one hour is really fast, and you have to like nail it, like oh, this is a CHF exacerbation, and run down that. But a lot of times, like I don't know if this is a CHF, a CHF exacerbation or 
you know, because a lot of time their chief complaint is just shortness of breath, right? So they have a history of heart failure, but maybe they're, they've had a history of DVTPE. So it could, you know, there's a lot of diagnostic uncertainty. And a lot of my labs haven't even come back in an hour. So it's like, how are you supposed to like really nail down this diagnosis of, oh, this is a CHF exacerbation and going down that path? Because not that late, you know, LASIKs aren't exactly benign either. So it's no. like, uh, I don't want to be throwing LASIK willy nilly at these patients, but there's obviously some decrease in mortality that's been uh, studied in this pretty well done study. Uh, that I wasn't previously mm-hmm. probably cognizant of. Yeah, and I think um, it just gives you a little bit more room and ammunition to say, hey, look, I'm not really killing the patient like some of your colleagues uh, believe. Yeah. So and just be aware of it, that it's kind of out there. I would kind of keep it in my honoritarium with, of course, you know, uh, afterload reducers like ACE inhibitors, IV, which I think we underutilize. Yeah. And uh, don't forget, when they have a little bump in their trope and you didn't give them an aspirin, you're going to get dinged for not treating their end STEMI. Um, even though it's just more of a, you know, probably numerical there that you're treating, but just try to remember the aspirin and, you know, uh, enalapril. I usually use enalapril. But, I'd uh, be enalapril. Yeah, 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 why not? Um, been shown to benefit. You know, what I found, I think that everybody does, they're little known, uh, the secret that people don't do. And this is a small study on topical anesthesia to control pain after corneal abrasions. Um, we did this in Journal Club. We did, yep. And uh, I love the fact that it brought up controversy, and I agree that it should bring up controversy. So I have a corneal abrasion from cutting some weeds outside. Mm-hmm. Okay, rule number one is I shouldn't be doing that because I'm lame. Uh, the first thing I do is not give myself antibiotics, right? Correct. I give myself topical anesthesia, right? Right. And I give myself topical anesthesia, and it wears off a few hours, and I do it again and again and again. And then by the next morning, I'm better. But then my patient comes in with the same exact problem, and I say, oh, no, you can't have this. You're going to die. Your eye's going to explode. Right. And why, why do we do that? Do you know? Well, I mean, I think there's uh, obviously been some literature in animal models and stuff like that that are increased risks of adverse side effects. And I think that what I've always been told is, like, you're going to send this person home. Like, in your case, right, so physician, have an understanding of the underlying pathology and whatnot you can appropriately use this topical anesthetic. Whereas someone that doesn't, maybe they'll use it, they'll go out, they'll get something else in their eye, they won't feel it, they'll worsen the abrasion, or, you know, even worse, uh, it... Because one thing to go back, going back to the paper is it was given to both people that had, you know, um, what do they call it, not severe or... Uh, shoot, now I'm spacing on it. No, no, no. It was, it was corneal abrasions and ulcerations also. Right. They were trying to eliminate all people with ulcerations, but un- unfortunately, some of them slipped through the cracks. Right. I guess that's what I'm saying. Like a simple mm-hmm. uh, a simple corneal abrasion versus a non-simple corneal abrasion was the kind of the divergent path. And they found that they did actually prescribe tetracaine inappropriately to people that had non-simple corneal abrasions. Right. So, one, that's a problem. And two, we don't know that this person is going to go out and do something mm-hmm. you know, inappropriate while on this tetracaine that could lead to worsening... Uh, corneal abrasions or ulcerations. Mm-hmm. So the ulceration, the thought is that if you have an ulceration, you give them tetracaine. There's something which I don't quite understand that's supposed to lead to when your when your cornea heals, that it more likely has fluorescein in it, which is kind mm-hmm. of interesting. And they saw some of that, but not statistically significant, uh, in this study. So mm-hmm. it's important to to realize that that's one of the reasons why we did it. So if I if I was going to give a summary for the study, I would say don't give it in people who have corneal ulcerations. And remember, corneal ulcerations is a big differential, you know, i.e. herpes. Right. You know, 
you know, whether it be foreign bodies, Ross Rang, et cetera. Right. And okay. those were the, the non-simple that they weren't supposed to be giving it to, but right. they did in this. And so, but ultimately they said that it was safe in the subpopulation of simple corneal abrasions. Right. Now, this study wasn't done in the U.S., and we have a different, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was done in New Zealand, and so we have a different type of, I, I don't know, do you feel like on your next shift, if you had a corneal abrasion, you would feel from a medical legal standpoint that you could say, hey, I'm going to discharge this patient with tetracaine, or do you feel like the medical legal environment still that? If you say, I discharge this patient, he's the one in the million that's still going to have the adverse outcome, and you gave him that tetracaine, like mm-hmm. if you go up on that stand, you're going to have an ophthalmology consult or consultant that's going to say, well, we have all of this post, you know, history, and this is not standard of care. Like, do you, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, do you think this is something that you would start doing based upon this study? Sadly, um, um, I do it a lot. And okay. um, I think I do the trick that a lot of the residents do, which is, hey, I'm going to leave the room now. There's, te- there's the analgesic in the room, right. and, and I'm going to have to throw it away anyway. Right. You know. What I do is I squirt it out until there's just a tiny little bit left, so they can't use it more than 24 hours well, anyway. That's a good idea. Uh, and then, yeah. I, I like your so idea better. If this disappears. I squirt it out and usually sell it on Bambi, right? <laughs> yeah. No, no, he doesn't. Yeah. Scratch I'm only kidding, out. only kidding. Only I kidding. can edit that out later. Just yeah. No, no, no. Keep that in there. All so, right. <laughs> um, hey, Thomas, do you do um, LPs on all these kids with febrile seizures? I don't. Okay. And why is this study considered new? I don't know why it's considered new, but these guys were multi center, 800 patients. 800 kids, six months to five years of age, and they came into the emergency department with a complex febrile seizure. Complex meant that it had a focal onset or was greater than 15 minutes or, or you had it twice within 24 hours. And they said that the incidence of meningitis was zero. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? But they had a little bit of, um, I apologize there, rates of bacterial meningitis and herpes encephalitis. So bacterial meningitis was 0.7, and herpes encephalitis was zero. I apologize. So herpes encephalitis was zero, and bacterial meningitis was 0.7. A lot of damage, okay, uh, for to find the four or five cases of the kids that had actual bacterial meningitis. Um, in response to that, all the kids who look like bacterial meningitis or had bacterial meningitis look like it. Right. So this is a you know if the yeah. gestalt. If it looks like and smells like meningitis, it's probably meningitis. But if the simple febrile seizure, I honestly don't uh, perform LPs on all of them. But again, and you have to realize, is this a simple febrile seizure? Is it a complex febrile seizure? And that's based upon like how long does it last? How old are they? You know, and make sure that you're looking those things up so you're not presenting, uh, like in my case as a resident, presenting a simple febrile seizure mm-hmm. as such when it is in fact a complex febrile seizure. Because if it is a complex, then I would be more likely to discuss and, and consider an LP in those patients. Okay. Here's a study. I have to, you know, you know, one of my band, uh, one of my soapboxes is addiction medicine. And of course, I have to slip some of that in there. And I found overprescription of opiates in children. I find this one awesome. Hmm. And the reason why I did it was prospective. Uh, about 340 kids or so who were discharged from the hospital with an opiate prescription. And about two-thirds or about 60% of the kids, they say none of the doses were used, okay? And only 4% of the leftover medications were disposed of. Okay, so put that in perspective. 95 96% were kept in the house. So when we see these kids, teens, et cetera, get into opiates, the number one place they get them is their own medicine cabinet or to a friend's medicine cabinet, okay? So how do you avoid that? 
You could lock up all your medicine cabinets very, very unsightly. And uh, Bed Bath Beyond doesn't make like a good locking mirror thing. If anybody wants a good thing to design, right? I think the better thing is to never. Yeah, we should. We should never come up with and never even give it to them in the first place. Okay. Or we can do like a face recognition where you look at the your vanity and then it opens up. People are scanning. Yeah, yeah, that's good. My question is: mm -hmm. so then, how do you treat pain in children? So let's say you have a kid that has a colitis fracture, right? Mm -hmm. You admit them for surgery or whatever it is, and they're getting discharged from the hospital or they're coming back with their pain not being controlled. How do you control their pain? I'm going to make a radical statement, okay? Do it. In non-cancer pain, giving opiates for more than three days is a waste in almost all diseases. Okay. And So you, you do know, short doses. Yeah, that's right. No more than three days. All right. And then, then switch to NSAIDs. I know not everyone can take NSAIDs, but also things that we don't do are, you know, there's not, but if you can't take NSAIDs, then you could take acetaminophen. Right. Okay. And I know the acetaminophen, you know, maybe won't knock off the pain, but, you know, immobilization might help. Maybe gabapentin will, maybe gar- carbamazepine would. Or we heard earlier about corneal abrasions, you could use adjuncts. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think if you had a guy who was had a history of opiate abuse, it's much safer to give him tetracaine to go home with and take that small risk that you missed an ulcer and he might get some fluorescein uptake and it might mess his field of vision up than to give him opiates again. That's much more likely hmm. that he'd become an opiate addict again. All right. So to finish off today, I wanted to talk about the timing of coronary angiography in patients with NSTEMI. Um, and this one's important because I think it touches off on a topic that uh, I've treated occasionally, you know, with the NSTEMI versus the STEMI. I think with the STEMI, uh, we get that drilled into our head. You know, we know the steps to it and we know when we should, what the next step is, right? So you see a STEMI on EKG, you activate the cath lab. Then what happens if we have a patient that's coming with some chest pain that we then get an elevated trope on? That's a little less, it's a little more nebulous. Usually it goes something like this. I see the patient, you know, we get the the elevated serum enzymes, and then we talk to cardiology and figure out what they want to do. I, th- I like this study because it's, it put people into one of two groups. It said we are going to invasively cath these people or we are going to let them kind of sit and simmer for a little bit longer. And essentially what they came out with is if they're high-risk patients, and what that means is that they have diabetes, their age greater than 75, or they have a gray score greater than 140. Uh, and if you don't know what the gray score is, like I didn't when I first read this paper, you can go to MDCalc and it'll show you. But it has to do with your age, um, your sex, your heart rate, systolic blood pressure, what your crea- uh, creatinine is, your uh, if you had a cardiac arrest, NEST, segment elevation, abnormal cardiac enzymes, which would obviously be yes, and then your Killip class. Um, and any, any of those high risks, they pushed for uh, more invasive uh, management of these people. But if they didn't have any high risks, they found no difference in mortality in early versus uh, delayed catheterization of these patients with NSTEMI. Wait a second. So if I have an NSTEMI and you say, I'm going to cath you right this minute, versus I'm going to cath you tomorrow. There's no difference in outcome? That's what they said. No difference wow. in mortality outcome. More difference in mortality outcome. Do you... Um, if you are in the not high risk subpopulation right. that I just discussed. Okay, so not high risk, it's okay to wait. Yeah. Okay, that's good. So a lot of cardiologists are getting more sleep after this paper comes out. Correct. I think Maybe it, less money, but yeah, more sleep. Yeah, and I think it confirms what they believed, Yeah. that it could kind of wait. What about um, STEMIs? I mean, has anything changed on that? I don't know. There's nothing in our uh, 
No, nothing. So don't, for, don't for this forget, month. this is not STEMIs. Correct. This is and STEMIs. And like STEMIs. I said, we know with the STEMI, you know what to do. You call the cardiologist, you activate the cath lab. But I wanted to go over just a little bit of the treatment. So if you have a patient that we were just talking about, right, so chest pain, uh, what's your first go-to for pain medication? Well, I mean, nitroglycerin. Okay. But, uh, do you yeah. start sublingual? Yes. Okay. Assuming they don't have an IV. But, yeah, sublingual is quicker onset. And also, you get a high dose really, really quickly. Okay. Some people argue, we talked earlier about CHF, is to give three sublingual. That's pretty right. gutsy, I that think. That is pretty gutsy. Um, but um, I'm not averse to two, especially if they have hypertension. Okay. One of my favorite patients to treat in the whole ER ever is the guy who has really, really high blood pressure and has CHF. Yeah. Because I know Those retro. Are oh, they're great. You save their life and without intubating them. Yeah. So I just wanted to go over, so yeah, nitro is my go-to. Uh, you can add a little morphine if that's not working, but usually I'll do one sublingual Q5 minutes and then start them on a drip if that's not working or put a little nitro paste. Make sure you're giving them their aspirin uh, and then our antiplatelet therapy, right? So we got to start them on something like clopidogrel. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been using any of these P2Y12 inhibitors, like uh, Prasagril, et cetera. Berlinta, Berlinta is a new yeah. one that I was, that I was reading about. Um, that's in some of the recommendations as well. And then our anticoagulation. So this is obviously in cahoots with the cardiologist and asking them what their preferences are. Some people like Berlinta, some people like Clopidogrel, yada, yada. Um, but making sure you are starting that antiplatelet therapy on top of your aspirin, which all of these chest pain patients should be getting, and then heparin as well, 70, to, uh, eight, 70 milligrams per kilogram. With a max of 5,000, you start your drip at 12 mil, uh, units per kilogram. So I think um, the, ev- the evidence is convincing that you should use those PGY2 inhibitors like Berlenta. Right. It's been, the, the, all the studies have been um, really positive so, for them, but they're still really expensive, and I feel like some of the cardiologists haven't quite adopted it yet, at least yeah. in, our, in our... I've asked about it a couple times, and they've uh, defaulted more to clopidogrel or some of the uh, G2P3 inhibitors. Mm-hmm. All right. And um, we appreciate it, and everyone else should have a happy holidays, and we'll try to do this uh, more frequently. Yeah, Stay this tuned. Is, so this is going to hopefully be a monthly segment that will just go over what's new for emergency medicine. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you have any feedback or comments, let us know. At Christmas time, we let in light and we vanish it. And in our world of plenty, Yeah.